Hello, and once again, welcome back to the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Rayhawk. And I'm your co-host, Josh Nefflin. Thank you for joining us for episode six of our Monster Bracket. Today's creature feature, we will be discussing 1999's The Sixth Sense, as well as 1987's Witches of Eastwick. As we discussed last week, we're also kind of bringing in some of the classic cinema interpretations of the monsters in the Moose movie. So we will also be discussing, for our ghost movie, The Uninvited from 1944, and for our witch movie, Bell, Book, and Candle from 1958. Before we get into things too heavily, there's some trivia I found that I can't not share as soon as possible. Apparently, one of the producers on Witches of Eastwick saw the success of one of the alien movies and was like put an alien in your movie to the point where he had some guy in an alien costume show up on set and was like hey director put this guy in your movie and ever just walked out <sighs> this is why movies are a communal work mm-hmm. fuck our tours fuck our tours however we're not talking about the alien franchise yet we're talking about the sixth sense and the uninvited so The Sixth Sense doesn't really have a movie that's based on the way The Mummy Returns and Shape of Water do. There's not really a good one-to-one comparison. So we went with The Uninvited, which is one of the earliest films made in America featuring a ghost in a fairly serious way. It's not like a comedy or a fantasy or whatever. It's like a serious gothic tale. The ghosts aren't just illusions or some misinterpretation of events going on there are actual paranormal things going on in this film and it's not like a wacky comedy where andrew jackson helps the protagonist with his sex life no it's definitely not that that's a that's a movie that exists (laughs) i'm sure it is Uh, it's also not one of the eighteen thousand adaptions of christmas carol that existed before this movie we're not going to go through the whole thing but the uninvited is about a brother and sister who buy a house the house has a dark history, and they unravel the secrets that the ghosts in the house contain, and you know, live happily ever after. I think this was a good choice because The Uninvited also has a twist. That's the thing you find with a lot of gothic horror about ghosts. There's some sort of twist or secret beyond just the ghost exists. Yeah, there's some knowledge that has been hidden from the living, either that the dead are trying to keep hidden or the dead are trying to reveal. You see this a lot in hauntology studies, that ghosts are often used as a metaphor for the repressed coming back to the surface, uh, no matter how hard you try to keep it buried. Literally being haunted by your past. Mm-hmm. And then we also get into the unfinished business aspect of ghosts, which is a thing we also see in The Sixth Sense and many other tales. It's a pretty standard ghost thing. Uh, where do we want to get started with The Uninvited? Usually we tend to recommend movies or not recommend them. I think The Uninvited is an interesting piece of history. I think that as a film, it doesn't hold up super well, but I will say the ghost effects are superb. They look good now. If you put that on screen and told me it was made five minutes ago, I'd be like, yes, excellent. Give them the Grammy for best special effects. (laughs) I would love that to be an actual Grammy category. (laughs) Right? So... What I'm assuming they did is they filmed a woman wearing like a gauzy white gown in front of a fan in black screen, basically green screen at the time, and put a gel over the edges of the camera so that her face is more in focus, but the rest of her is, is fuzzy. And then they superimpose that over the rest of the film. And that's how you get this really cool effect of this 
ghostly phantasmal figure that seems to be fading away the further she gets from her center, which is a really cool, really beautiful effect. It feels real. It looks like, it, like it's interacting with you know the real plane in a way that you wouldn't get if she was just semi-transparent because it's a really easy, cheap effect. It's really impressive, and I love how much it works. It's effectively the same thing that happens with animation cells, just done with live-action photography. Pretty much. And you also get some of that really good haunting room sound. One of the two ghosts in the house is just sort of weeping constantly, and the sound of her weeping while the characters discuss it in hushed tones and a single lamp is pleasantly spooky. Rick, it's true, isn't it? Sound, I mean. You're hearing it, too. Of course I'm hearing it. You see, I wasn't sure. Pam! I thought I might be going crazy. I'm bringing all this up because ghost movies, especially in horror, tend to live and die by how much you believe the ghost, how much you believe the haunting. And uh, I think it's one of the things The Sixth Sense does incredibly well. The ghosts feel real, even if they're not strictly always tangible. Mm -hmm. They may not be tangible, but they have a very real effect on Cole and the world around them. Right. Whenever this film is doing ghost stuff, I think it's succeeding. Right. Outside of that, there's a lot of chaff. Yeah. There's a sort of very boring love story between a man and someone half his age. Why is that our theme for this bracket? Blame Hollywood. <laughs> I always do. Uh, their protagonist, Roderick, and his sister buy this house from a former armed forces officer. I can't remember what branch. This is also in the UK, so. C Colonel, Captain. Yeah, something with a C. He has a granddaughter. And Roderick and the granddaughter kind of hit it off and begin a relationship. And her mother and another ghost are the ones haunting the house that Roderick just bought. You get this really creepy thing where one of the ghosts threw herself from the cliff by the side of the house and keeps possessing people to make them do the same thing. Mm -hmm. And speaking of possession, this actually ties into the exorcist again. There's a bit pretty early on where they're, you know, they don't really believe in the ghost, but they want to have a fake seance to give the ghost closure and but doing so give Stella the young woman some closure but the ghost shows up and hijacks the seance which is kind of what is happening in the exorcist we're gonna have a fake exorcism so that this girl who believes she's possessed will be unpossessed whoopsies yeah but that also kind of plays into the underlying elements you see with a lot of like gothic horror stories where ghosts are super in-depth with like psychological stuff you see this with here with the uninvited with turn of the screw with haunting of hill house with sixth sense ghosts are disturbed minds that don't have a body that are causing people who have bodies and minds to be yet more and more disturbed mm -hmm. which is really fun and I, I like that that's kind of this underlying theme that's making me realize how gothic the sixth sense is in story if not in necessarily style and presentation yeah we also have their housekeeper who's this very excitable irish woman god I'm pretty sure at one point she literally shouts, Saints preserve us! <laughs> and I always forget the old timey racism against the Irish, and it always makes me super uncomfortable as someone of Irish descent. <laughs> it was something that I never got around to talking about with Road to Perdition, specifically the comic. And we'll get back to Road to Perdition later in the episode. Oh, interesting. Speaking of other things we're retreading, this movie has some things in common with Hunchback in its uh, portrayal of the Romani. Yep. It's weird, and we can't get into it without talking about the twist ending. Which, I mean, this movie's from the 40s. I don't know if anybody really minds. Yeah, but if, if you haven't seen it and want to go in... Skip ahead two minutes. So the two women, one is Stella's father's wife, and the other is Stella's father's ex. 
Solus Father's ex happens to be a Romani woman from Spain. And throughout the film, the living characters who are connected to all of this keep saying how evil and cruel and selfish that Carmel, the Romani woman, was. And then it's later revealed that, oh, Stella is actually Carmel's child, and the new wife bought Stella from Carmel, and then Carmel had second thoughts and wanted her kid back, and that's what led to all of the animosity. And she's the weeping ghost who's just really sad because she never got to know her kid. Mm -hmm. Which, it's really tragic. And while the movie is still pretty bad about the shitty stuff it's saying about the Romani, I'm glad that it gives the character at least some level of agency and complexity, and, and she isn't just this, like, flat, evil stereotype. Yeah. I think it was trying to do something interesting, but it's also from the 40s and therefore only doing so much. World War II was still happening at this point. Yes. Imagine making films when World War II is happening. Although I guess we're still making films when all of this mess is happening, so. Yeah. There's also a bit where they're talking about, I can't remember if it was fake mom or real mom, and someone says, but wait, isn't she dead? And Roderick says, not dead enough for me, which is a, a good joke about a ghost. Honestly, it's probably the best line of the movie. Mm -hmm. I think this film has talented actors and some of the characters are strong, but there's still a bit too much like empty space for them to inhabit. There might be a strong character. I think the doctor <laughs> that they have is pretty good. The doctor who definitely... Made sex with everybody in the town who was interested. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, very strong bisexual energy. However, a lot of these characters aren't really characters, but just ways to provide the audience with exposition. That's fair. This film is so long and bloated, and I think it could be cut by half and still have a cohesive story, which is really frustrating. I think what was going on is that they weren't quite sure whether audiences would be interesting in all of the ghost stuff. So they also provided a very paint-by-numbers love plot for Roderick and Stella for people who weren't interested in the ghost stuff to follow along with. And so you have two stories and only one of which the production really cared about making good. Mm -hmm. And in fact, this movie has been cut down. There is a radio play that's like... Half an hour? Yeah, minutes. half an hour. Yeah. You can do these things pretty quickly. Mm. I think I've said my piece on The Uninvited. Why don't we move over to Sixth Sense? Yeah. While it's a, a long road from The Uninvited to The Sixth Sense, I can see kind of bits of how we got there. Every so often we get these films that are kind of this quiet, introspective, gothic story about ghosts as opposed to being kind of ghosts of this like flashy, jump out at you kind of thing. Mm. Which is what they started as back in 1897 with the first color film about ghosts. Literally hand-colored, frame by frame. Yeah. I think of films being comparatively recent, so the idea mm -hmm. that there was color film back in the 1800s, technically, is wild to me. Mm. But looking at where ghosts are in 44 and where ghosts are in 99, I think The Uninvited was a good choice because there's a lot of similarities there. Like, we have the twist ending, we have the psychological elements, and we have the initial disbelief in ghosts that is slowly changed throughout more interaction with them we even have the cold thing yep which actually a bit i wanted to get into last time but i, I wanted to save it for this episode so in the sixth sense it's established that things get colder when ghosts are feeling strong emotions i think cold uh, is talking about sadness in particular but we also see it with anger so i think it's just any passionate thing 
like there's a bit where Malcolm comes back home and looks at his wife who's sleeping in bed and he's just kind of slightly despondent because neither he nor the audience at this point knows that he's a ghost so it just seems like she's kind of distant from him and she rolls over and tugs a blanket closer to her so it's a good way of showing that it's slightly cooler because he's sad later on when he realizes that he's a ghost and that he's been dead this whole time and, and his wife has been basically alone grieving all this time and he hasn't been able to help her her breath just is super icy and everything just like looks deeply cold and it's a really beautiful heart-wrenching way to show how sad he is by the way it literally affects the environment around him it's so cool and it's so poignant and i love mm -hmm. it I, I like that they don't comment on it or dwell on it it's just something that kind of has to be like oh wow he feels yeah. that much and the scene earlier i really love the very subtle ways that Shyamalan is giving the audience hints as to what's actually going on with Malcolm, but they are incredibly subtle and you have to know what you're looking for. It's in there so much and so obviously once you know the twist that it's almost gleeful. It's like Shyamalan is so excited about sharing the twist with you, but he can't because he's just waiting for that reveal. It's like when you've seen a thing but your friend hasn't, he's like waiting for him to get to the scene where the cool thing happens. Yeah, I think it's that subtlety that really makes the sixth sense of work. There's a lot of scenes that could feel like chaff, but there's enough going on that's just subtly there and it's building, and you can tell it's building towards something that it yeah. never feels like it's dragging. Yeah. I never felt bored, even when the scenes that there's just characters talking. Yeah, but even the, with the scenes of characters just talking, we're getting an idea of the emotional landscape of these characters. We're seeing them react, and it's just way more interesting because outside of all the stuff happening, ghosts in the uninvited, everyone seems reasonably happy i mean they don't really have any problems minus the ghost stella seems kind of sad about her mom dying and and she's shut in by her dad grandpa whatever which is unfortunate but she just needs a man to show her the town yeah so. but she's less of a character and more of a plot device unfortunately mm. as love interest characters often are in films of that era yeah unfortunately whereas i feel like there's not a lot of wasted time or characters in uh, the sixth sense like even the bullies at least wind up giving us that scene where cole is shut in the closet and has mm -hmm. to deal with whatever horrible ghost is in there that we never see yeah but we also like get to see some comeuppance for the bully in towards the climax where cole is the lead in the play yeah <laughs> and uh his bully is having to play the town idiot he's a stable boy cleans up after the horses silence village idiot let the boy step forward Which I maintain is still on the nose, but still satisfying. This is kind of an out there theory. Okay. So there's a bit where Malcolm is starting to believe in ghosts and he's starting to believe that some people can see ghosts. So he listens to a tape by a former patient where the former patient we now realize was talking to a ghost. Maybe. Cole establishes for us that ghosts don't always realize they're ghosts. They can only see what they, what they want to see. Things only realize them if they believe in them. They only see what they want to see. They don't know they're dead. I'm wondering if there wasn't actually a voice on that tape, but if Malcolm was starting to believe so much that he started hearing things because he believed in them, not because it was actually there. I don't like that theory because I don't like what it does to Vincent Gray as a character. Okay, that makes sense. I think Vincent Gray is really interesting, really tragic character. I like the way that... They decided to have Vincent stripped down to just his underwear to like just show how vulnerable he is in that moment. 
and the acting of how hurt he is when Malcolm doesn't recognize him at first is really solid. Do I know you? Don't you know me, hero? Don't you even remember your own patience? I don't want to be afraid no more. Just give me a minute to say I waited 10 years for you. I'm not giving you nothing. And I understand how that scene can also be very exploitative for people who have experienced deep emotional trauma. And who have had unhelpful interactions with mental health professionals. And that's why I'm glad that Vincent doesn't stick around too long. We get what we need from him and then he is out of the film. And we don't have to deal with M. Night's really good portrayals of mental illness. Yeah. And while suicide is never good, I also appreciate the way the film portrayed that. It made it clear what was going to happen with Vincent's gestures towards his head with the gun, but then the camera is just panning away, so we're only looking at a wall when that gun goes off. I think that was a very good way to make it clear what's happened without making us watch it, which is a way to give Vincent just a little bit of dignity at the end. Yeah, and it's a classic move to pan out or leave the room, and then you just see the flash and hear the gunshot, and... Via context clues, you know what's happened. I think it's done incredibly well here. And again, like we're saying, the subtlety of the film is what's working there. It's exciting, but it's not exploitative. It's not ghoulish. This film, it's also another example of avoiding cuts and edits to really bring a scene home. great example of this is during one of our first scenes with Cole, he and his mom are sitting down to breakfast. His mom moves over to the laundry room and we just have the camera follow her and she's doing a few things in there and then she comes back to the kitchen and all of the cabinets and all of the drawers are pulled open. <laughs> Something you're looking for, baby? Pop-tarts? Something weird's going on. How was he able to do all of that in just the, what, maybe 30 seconds his mother was in the other room the camera wasn't on him? I'm not making any noise. I feel like if you know anything about the movie, you, you can assume it's ghosts. Yeah. But it's still that weird ambiguity. It's kind of like that scene from Poltergeist where all the chairs are stacked on top of each other, mm-hmm. but without being kind of so over the top, as it were. By not having any cuts or edits, we have the continuity of time. And so we know exactly how much time the camera was off of Cole, as opposed to if we're cut the camera back to him or like cut to the camera in the laundry room, that continuity of time is broken and so it's a little more ambiguous i think the decision to put a oneer there is great yeah there's a lot of oneers which is a dangerous thing to do when you have a child actor it worked out but that was still a a bold move Mm -hmm. speaking of i feel like at some point and my channel got really enamored with cole's like talking like this about ghosts you're scary because it shows up more and more across the film, and I get what it's doing, but sometimes it feels a little overwrought. A little bit too much scared child whispering. Like, that's fine for a scene, but when it's a whole second act, I'm like, no, please. It feels more artificial than scary, I guess, yeah. which is it's one of the times when the film isn't being subtle, and it mm-hmm. doesn't work. <laughs> Meanwhile, circling back to the 50s, let's talk about Bell Booking Candle. Bell Booking Candle is very of its time. Again, we have a romance between a man and a woman half his age. <sighs> Except here it's Jimmy Stewart, so it's harder to be disgusted with him. I mean, I, I've seen no Hitchcock movies to, to understand what he's doing here. <laughs> I mean, I, I like Jimmy Stewart as a classic actor. Like, I, I love Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. 
love thy neighbor. And in this world today full of hatred, a man who knows that one rule has a great trust. Because of course I do. <laughs> if you haven't seen North and Northwest recently, rewatch it, at least the first act. It is an incredibly funny movie. Mm -hmm. This is one of the big influences on what would become the Bewitched television show. Mm -hmm. You can very easily see how it evolved from Bell Booking Candle to the Bell, to Bewitch to, to Sabrina the Teenage Witch, etc. Mm -hmm. I think the idea of the modern, of our time, which very clear evolution over the decades, and Witches of Eastwick definitely fits very squarely in that category as well. So Bell Booking Candle is about a woman, Jillian, who is part of this underground society of witches, but she's like, maybe I want to be normal. I don't know. Y'all are weird. Then she falls in love with Jimmy Stewart, and some shenanigans happen, but witches can't keep their magic if they fall in love. So she's just a human now. It's definitely fitting into this whole witch or normal woman thing that you can't be both. The masquerade of witch society mm -hmm. that you get in a lot of things. I have trouble with this premise because why would you ever not want to be a witch? There's no place like, I want to be a witch! <laughs> <laughs> I think something like Charmed, both the original series as the new one, do well is there are complications by trying to straddle both worlds, but it is not impossible to do so. Right. And it's more about the adventure of balancing those two things than being torn between these two worlds. It's the same thing that happens with superheroes. If you have superpowers, of course you're going to be a superhero, because who wouldn't really? With great power comes blah, blah, blah. There's just complications of trying to keep those two lives from interacting. Mm -hmm. I will say it doesn't help that most of the humans in Bell Booking Candle, they range from fine to a bit loathsome, whereas all the witches are great. Gillian's aunt, uh, Queenie, is hilarious, and her brother, cousin, friend... Brother, Nikki. Um, yeah, her, her brother, Nikki, is this like fun, flamboyant character, and even the kind of grand dame of witchcraft that we get is the missing golden girl who found a spell book at some point yeah we'll get back to bianca a little bit later for as far as humans we have shepherd played by jimmy stewart who's the love interest and spends most of the film under a hex or recovering from being under said hex mm -hmm. we have his fiance then ex-fiance who is she has an artistic temperament <laughs> uh as an art major i feel attacked but okay <laughs> As a Pisces, uh, I am speaking truth to power. <laughs> and then we have Sidney Rutledge, who is an author fresh off of Magic in Mexico, a big sort of tell-all book about magic traditions in Mexico, as you may have guessed, uh, which apparently sold almost as well as the Kinsey Report. We're going to put a pin in that. <laughs> and he shows up and wants to write about you know, magic in Brooklyn or wherever they are. Magic in Manhattan. About magic in Manhattan. And talk about the witch community. You say show up. He was magically summoned there. Right, because Shep wanted to meet him and Gillian just magicked him up because she has no concern for free will. Since we've already broached that subject, let's just go ahead and dive into it. This film, terrible sense of consent. <laughs> yeah, it's that thing where so often... Women doing love potion stuff to men is seen as okay or comical or tragic or whatever, as opposed to horrifying the way it would be, would be if the genders were reversed. Especially since we have a great example of the genders being reversed. In fact, the film even references it with The Mummy. Yeah. The scene in which Jillian is laying the hex on, like petting the cat and the close-up we see of her face and how bright her eyes are. 
I cannot believe that that is not a direct reference to The Mummy, which we talked about earlier on this podcast. Mm-hmm. And I mean, The Mummy, but she's a really sexy lady who's like live and seductive is the best part of The Mummy 2017. So I'm here for it. I do really love how some of the magic is presented in this. It's a lot of characters looking intently at a thing while someone turns a blue light on near them to show that magic is happening before we have like the effects of CGI or whatever. Or even rotoscoping. Yeah. I mean, I guess we we had that capability, but it didn't look all that good yet. So for now, it's just this very, again, subtle visual effect. Yeah. And some very unsubtle sound effects. I would say that they are at least charming, though. Yeah, they're casting spells. <laughs> I hate you. <laughs> There's also another like weird audio thing. There's a couple instances where we get Shep's internal monologue. Oh god, yeah, I forgot about that. It is very unnerving. It does not play well. And I've talked about internal monologue before on the podcast. And like A lot of films go out of their way to avoid it, especially if they're adapting a book that uses it heavily because it just doesn't work well on camera. And here's a perfect example of why. We needed animated Lizzie McGuire. Jimmy Stewart's inner goddess. Or a training montage in the background of like gymnastics routines from Stick It. Exactly. There's a fun YouTube channel shuffling up the narration and the montage that it goes with. <laughs> Speaking of shuffling things up, I was a little unclear until I mentioned the Kinsey Report, and then I'm like, yep, it's, it's definitely meant to be that way. The witch community in this movie is clearly a sort of thinly veiled metaphor for the gay community. I mean, look at Nikki. <laughs> look how he's looking up at his bandmates at the beginning of the film. Oh, yeah. It makes the metaphor kind of break down because... It's not particularly easy to leave the gay community. You have to, like, it's... I mean, ask Ellen. Oh, oh no. That is, that is too spicy for how we're recording this. Mm. Ooh. Oh, boy. Because you can't stop being a gay by falling in love with a man. I think it stays with you, and I'd actually really love to see this redone with, like, modern sensibilities about all that, but... And then there's also the weird, icky shit of, like, you know, Jillian casting the spell and kind of recruiting Shep into the gaze. Mm -hmm. And Nikki outing everybody by, you know, being the the snitch. Mm -hmm. It's not an ironclad metaphor. I'm not saying this movie will help you understand, like, queer culture. There's better options for that. Yeah. Paranorman is better for that. <laughs> but it's definitely there. And I think that's kind of always been an undercurrent with a lot of witch cinema. You have this female empowerment and female sexuality that strays into aspects of crossing acceptable and established lines of gender and sexuality and performance. Mm. The two extremes of witches in cinema and storytelling in general tend to fall into one of two categories. You've got the hag. What if a woman was very unsexy, but she didn't care what the men thought about that? Perfect example is Wicked Witch of the West from Wizard of Oz, probably mm. one of the earliest examples in cinema, and also probably the reason that most witches are green. Mm-hmm. Then you have the polar opposite. What if women were very sexy but still didn't care what men thought of them? You have in the modern witch archetype here, Bewitched, Sabrina the Teenage Witch, Charmed, which is Eastwick. The Witch from The Witch from 2015, which is both, and also incredibly good. I can't stress enough how good that movie is. You kind of get this with uh, Witches of Eastwick, where you have these women who are in what could arguably be described as a sort of polyamorous harem thing with mm-hmm. Daryl Van Horn, and then later become this kind of... Co-parenting collective? Yeah, manless co-parenting collective. I guess their their kids are, are men, but they're not, they're not men, they're babies. 
You don't get a gender until you decide what kind of gender you want to be and grow the right number of horns. It's this long-standing tradition of women flaunting established gender roles and people getting uptight about that. Yeah. Which to me is kind of weird in that aspect. I mean, on the one hand, they do talk about how women don't need men to complete them or whatever. Then why do we always end up talking about them? And then the whole movie is about them dealing with this man that they've conjured up. There are pros and cons to how gender is presented in the film. It's not all bad, it's not all great. And Double Looking Candle is a good example of this thing that a lot of these modern witch movies have. It's women with all these phenomenal cosmic powers. And their main focus is dealing with the men in their lives, which is a pretty grim commentary on like womanhood. And also that thing where a lot of witch movies, especially witch movies written by men, feature women using spellcraft to dick over other women, either like cursing them, killing them, whatever. Stealing their men. Stealing their men. It's unfortunate because a lot of great parts of, of witchcraft and witch culture, both you know in good fiction and in real life, are about women finding ways to live outside of the needs of menfolk. And empowering each other, lifting and, each other up. Lifting each other up. And it's kind of sad that we really only get like one scene of that in Witches of Eastwick. Well, there's a scene of them fighting the devil, which is pretty cool, but we only get a few scenes of them like bonding as women, which is why I really like the hag archetype in film, media, book, whatever. The woman who kind of lives on her own because she generally doesn't need to be beautiful, doesn't need to be loved or whatever, she just wants to like be a witch in the woods and be fine, is a fun archetype. I like stuff that celebrates that well. Speaking of hags, let's talk about Bianca. So Bianca is one of the witch characters in Bell, Book, and Candle, and she is the one who helps Shepard break the bewitchment that Jillian's placed upon him. Shep and Nikki and I can't remember if the author's there as well. Yeah, he's there. Yeah. They all go to her place and it's much more stereotypically witchy than anything else that we've seen in the film. Like she brews a potion and she talks about the old ways and she's also a older woman in general. It's just a very stark contrast to the epitome of which that we've seen with Jillian. I think if this film had realized that Jillian is a monster, it could have been much more interesting. It could have explored more of this whole like old ways, new ways divide. Mm-hmm. But Jillian seems to want to have her cake and eat it too. There's not really a whole lot of like build up and then tear down of the relationship between Jillian and Shep. It kind of just happens. They're happy for a little bit and then it ends. It's really frustrating they kind of just exposit the run of the relationship you get a lot of this in this period of hollywood where it's not so much seeing the characters fall in love it's just them kind of stating to each other and the camera yeah and then kind of necking for a bit yeah that's what love is necking also going back to the culture in bubble and candle as being a metaphor for the queer community we also have some subtle hints of like mccarthyism in here we also see that with the character of Felicia in Witches of Eastwick. And that has also definitely been a reoccurring theme in witch fiction. You can even see this in things like The Crucible. Out other women in order to increase their own status, protect their own status, or just to be vindictive. Mm-hmm. I think The Crucible is kind of the most obvious witchcraft equals red scare thing. Yes. I was looking up just stuff about Witches of Eastwick, and I wound up in this Pepe Silvia rabbit hole. The screenplay is by Michael Christopher, who is also not an actor. His first role on Wikipedia is uncredited voice in The Exorcist. Interesting. Yeah. He wrote Bonfire of the Vanities, also based on a book, came out right after Witches of Eastwick. 
I think it kind of had the same energy but put into a different chassis, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Which is directed by Paul Newman. Paul Newman, who we know from... There are only murderers in this room. And it feels like he's like this shadowy presence who's been at the edge of all these things we've been looking at all this time. And I'm trying to figure out what it means. And I realized it was just Hollywood only has so many people. Uh, up until very recently, Hollywood has just kind of been this boys club. It really has been. Man, I'm so excited for all the witch movies directed by women. <laughs> there are so few... I wish I understood the love witch. It sounds like a sandwich. It sure does. <laughs> anyway, I'm trying to figure out why this movie existed because it seems very out of character for the people involved with it. I wouldn't necessarily say it seems out of character for Jack Nicholson. This is exactly the type of roles Jack Nicholson plays. Oh, for sure. This is definitely Jack Nicholson joins. But George Miller directed a few short films, the Mad Max movies, and then this. And it feels like a swerve. And I can't find what it was about this that made him jump on. It might be some interest in just feminism in general, That's especially true. if you take a look at this film and how it's interacting with feminism and the original work. And then you look at Fury Road. I mean, there's definitely evolution there. Oh, for sure. And I mean, to a certain extent, even the original Mad Max films had some interesting things to say about gender. Well, yeah, like, the, it's, like it's a post-apocalyptic, which means all social norms are out the window and you can kind of reestablish how you'd like. Yeah, that's true. So I guess maybe it does kind of fit in. It just feels like it's uh, odd. I would not immediately have picked him to direct this. No. I think I want to jump into here that I really like, in which is a V-Swick. The women originally kind of have the same general clothing color palette as the rest of the town, but as they get more and more wild and adventurous, their clothes get kind of more flamboyant and 60s-ish. Mm-hmm. And I like that. I think that's a good visual way to differentiate them from the rest of the town, mm-hmm. which has this kind of very like pastel New england vibe. Although the style change for Susan Sarandon's character Jane is ridiculous. She goes from dressing like a Mennonite <laughs> to dressing like a neglected woman about to seduce a pool boy. Wow. Why would you say something so brave and yet so accurate? <laughs> Paints a picture. <laughs> yeah. And I guess she does seduce a man in a pool, so. That shift just seems so radical and sudden. It's very kind of off-putting. Yeah, like, parts of this movie are very subtle, like that scene where they're all figuring out his name, and parts of them are gauding over the top, like the... The vomit scene, either of them. Yeah. They will not be able to, like, decide what it wants to be with that. Yeah, we talked about this last time, how the tone of the film keeps changing and we're not sure what it wants us to think. The tone is just changing all over the place. It's not consistent. And the tone isn't inconsistent in a way that like fits with the women going from a mundane to magical world. It's not like wacky when magic and mundane when in the muggle spaces. It'll just change at random. Mm-hmm. And then you also have the wackiness of Jack Nicholson reading his top Reddit comments in a church. I had the last episode we talked about that. I'm not putting that clip in again. I'm not going back to watch that. Nope. <laughs> Shifting gears, there's this one weird thing that I was never able to figure out. The movie doesn't explain, and it's really confusing to me. So Daryl goes to meet Suki, seduce the final of the trio. And then Suki and Alex are coming over to the house. Jane is already there. And Daryl has these three scratches on his face that are never explained. No one asks any questions about it. We never see the scene where he gets them. And all of a sudden, they just, like, go away after a while. It's an old scratch. (laughs) (laughs) I'm wondering if that was a cut scene or a deleted scene or something. 
I can totally understand if it if it's a freaky sex thing, you know, that's totally within the realm of this movie, but they just never explain it. It's just he has very clear scratches on his face, no one talks about it, and then they go away. I'm really sure there was some bit that was cut because everything I'm seeing tells me that this film had a lot of meddling and making it up on the fly and things kind of kept changing on people. That doesn't surprise me at all. <laughs> yeah. Which also helps explain the weird tone stuff. Mm-hmm. One thing I will say for Wizard of East Week, while it has some troubles, it did set us up for what witches were going to be like for the next few decades. Because before this, there was not much that was all that memorable for witches. Like, there's a few films, but nothing you've really heard of. But after this, we get... Practical Magic, The Craft, Hocus Pocus, The Witches, which are all different things you can see as having grown out of Witches of Eastwick. Yeah, and that's only as far as film and television. We get Charmed, we get the Sabrina the Teenage Witch series with with Melissa Joan Hart. We also get Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Mm -hmm. We also get Witches of East End much later. Much later. Like we were a few episodes ago with Rocky Horror and Witches of Eastwick, there's not a whole lot of practical makeup effects going on for most of these films probably the most significant stuff going on we have some of the gore effects in the sixth sense and we have daryl's transformation in witches of eastwick Mm -hmm. i think i'm going to give it more to the sixth sense because while daryl has a big dramatic transformation it feels so out of left field and so over the top and not very well realized hasn't aged that well that it doesn't really work for me whereas all the stuff in the sixth sense is subtle and looks like it could have been made you know five minutes ago I'm also much more interested in D- Daryl's more subtle transformation as the women leave him and what he grows into after that. I think that's much more interesting than I'm a giant monster now. Right. I think if that had been teased out more slowly, that like, could have been really cool. I love stuff where you have like four or five different stages of a thing all done in practical effects. Like, mm. You see that with some, some like werewolf stuff, some like alien mm. stuff. It's really fun and exciting, mm-hmm. but we really just get like a claw and then... And both Bell Book and Candle, which is these, have very subtle effects for their magic. They're not very ostentatious. In fact, Bell Book and Candle is probably a little bit more so with like the lighting and the sound effects, whereas Witches of Eastwick is much more downplayed. We do get a few scenes. Like they have that scene with the tennis ball, sweet scene of characters flying, that kind of thing. But a lot of it is done with more the way things are shot and the, and the sound, which is pretty cool. Moving on to the evolution of the monster archetype from the early films to the films we're talking about here, what do you think has had a more interesting evolution? It's hard to say because they haven't really changed all that much, have they? It's definitely more subtle evolution than like revolution that we've seen in some of the other films that we talked about. Really, the only difference between the ghosts in Sixth Sense and the ghosts in The Uninvited are the Sixth Sense are more corporeal and they're more bloody. And that feels more like just the technology in question and the way that the film wanted to use its ghosts. Yeah. I think that's also like in general how ghosts are often portrayed when doing ghosts in film. There's this urge to avoid showing the ghosts directly. They're very subtle or they're invisible, and we kind of just see the actions the ghosts are taking rather than the ghosts themselves. I think I am slightly more impressed with the evolution of the storytelling about the monster in The Sixth Sense, because Bubble can Candle to Witches of Eastwick, it's the same sort of thing, women using magic to get what they want and then maybe going a bit too far with it, whereas in The Uninvited, the ghosts are this foreign thing to the protagonist, whereas in The Sixth Sense we explore the experience of being a ghost the sadness the regret all that jazz and i think that is a bigger change at least 
that ghosts definitely have much more agency in the sixth sense than they do in the uninvited and and as you were saying the witch archetype from like bell book and candle to witches of eastwick and beyond it's it's a very clear through line we see what has happened with it there haven't been all that many shifts to it honestly you can probably plot the shifts in the witch archetypes to the shifts in our understanding of feminist critique and they're kind of probably one-to-one more or less yeah i mean it's gonna have like a bit of a scatter because of who's making the story but yeah pretty yes. much one other thing i think that you could make an argument that witches of eastwick is a bit of a downgrade for witches in general in the universe of their existence because witches of eastwick they've only got each other there's just the three of them whereas Bellbook and candle there's a whole community there's all these people that give each other mutual support which is really great and i think the idea that monsters can still find a community is what we like a lot about The Shape of Water. So on both counts, and also I think just in general, The Sixth Sense is going to win out this week. Oh yeah. In general, there's not really a contest. We weren't too keen on Witches of Eastwick when it went up against Rocky Horror, and we both fawned over The Sixth Sense. And for good reason. It's an excellent movie, and Witches of Eastwick definitely has some structural problems. I think we did a good job of making this an interesting episode, even though we both kind of knew exactly what was going to happen at the end. I hope we did. If not, tell us in the comments. Argue with us. Yes. The Sixth Sense is going to be moving on into our final, going up against The Shape of Water. Fantastic final match. Mm-hmm. I'm really excited to talk about this one. Mm-hmm. And which of Eastwick will unfortunately be banished back to the realm it came from. Next week is going to be our final already. Yeah. This bracket a little on the short side because we wanted to hit that uh, Friday the 13th and Halloween thing. This short bracket fit so well into the uh, spooky time of the year that we couldn't not do it and we do have a halloween special that we still haven't announced and i think we'll go ahead and leave that as a surprise for now still mm-hmm. we don't want your sentiment about that to like eclipse the rest of the experience yeah we want people to still be excited about our final i will mention that we will have a very special guest on for our, our halloween special but if you want to know as soon as this bracket's finale, as well as our Halloween special goes live, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Podbean, and Spotify. Until then, this has been the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.